Hello and welcome to this podcast by the Center for Geopolitics at the University of Cambridge. My name is Philipp Hirsch and this is the first episode of our podcast series on Germany in the world. In September, Germany will elect a new parliament. We don't know what the result is going to look like yet, but one thing is for certain, there will be a new German chancellor. After governing the country for 16 years, Angela Merkel is no longer running for office. Her successor and their government will have to tackle the fallout of the corona crisis and several global challenges, such as the rebuilding of the Atlantic Alliance, the rise of China or the climate crisis. Germany is one of the major global economic and political powers. And so the Center for Geopolitics felt that this is a good moment to assess where Germany stands today in the world, what this election is about, and what themes and what people are going to shape this summer's campaign. The focus of today's first episode is going to be Merkel's legacy as chancellor, as well as her potential successors. And to discuss this, I will be talking with John F. Jungklausen. John is a historian and journalist, and until recently, for 20 years, he had been UK correspondent for the German newspaper Die Zeit. John, thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, Philip. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Um, now, Angela Merkel has been shaping, you might even say, dominating uh, German politics for 16 years. What would you single out as the key characteristics of her time in office? I, th I think you look at two events, I think, that, that shaped her, her time in office, uh, which were, of course, the, the euro crisis, which started at the end of 2009, the, the European sovereign debt crisis that put into sharp relief the flaws of, of the great post-war European construct that was Europe, and specifically the single currency. And, and I don't know to what extent you want to go into, into the detail of what happened then, but people will remember the problems that were, were faced by people in Greece and Portugal in particular. And then, of course, the immigration crisis in 2015. That was the defining moment, I think, of her chancellorship and gave her that authority that many people in the West continue to sort of admire her for, that sense of she is, you know, you remember during the Trump years, um, she was seen to be the last man standing, the last person to uphold liberal values, whereas the rest of the world was descending into populism. Now, that's, of course, a, it's, it's, it's a crass exaggeration. But I think her unilateral decision to open the door to a million refugees was an extraordinary act of courage. And much to a lot of people's surprise, it worked out quite well, don't you think? I mean, I think the integration of, of these migrants worked better, turned out less problematic so far anyway, than people expected in Germany too. And beyond that, her style of government, I think, also helped to bolster her reputation and ultimately Germany's reputation. You know, hers is a calm, considered, quiet way of governing, which, again, is very different to what we see in, in Britain over during the Brexit debate, in, in America over Trump, and places like, well, think of what happened in Italian politics over the last few years, how, how noisy and, and sometimes crazy that, that seemed or people like Bolsonaro in uh, Brazil. And of course, I mean, first of all, remember how long she's been in power for. When she came into power, Tony Blair was still prime minister in Britain. That's how long ago that is. George W. Bush was president in the United States. So the only, the only other person who's, who rivals her, uh, of course, is Putin, who 
has no democratic legitimacy. And I think it's remarkable in two ways. One, of course, there are people who don't know anything other than, a lot of people, young voters in Germany, who don't know anything other than Merkel being in power. So for them, this is a huge <laughs> moment of, of change, first-time voters. And then I think you could look at these 16 years in power as the maybe the end of, of that period post-unification. I think the, the sort of the characterization of the Chancellor of Crisis is, is quite, you know, quite widespread one. Sort of you could even add the Corona crisis as sort of the final, the, the final shape to this characterization. But I mean, the style was certainly different. In, in particular, if you remember Gerd Schröder was her predecessor, who was much more famous for being for being rash and quite sort of quite straightforward in, in his style. Do you would you still say that there was some sort of um, vision um, behind her? I mean, she continued Helmut Kohl's work in as much as, you know, he was he was the one who united Germany. She continued that work. Germany isn't united, I think, as a, as a nation. West and East still don't look eye to eye. But I think Germany under her, of course, has, has become a much more pleasant country. She's moved the CDU way into the center. So one of the results of her chancellorship is, of course, the crushing of the SPD which at the moment stands at, what, 15, 16% or something. Same-sex marriage was legalized. Um, the, as I said, the, the integration of foreigners worked. Germany seems a lot more relaxed and at ease with itself than, than it was in the, in the 80s and 90s. Um, now you already sort of elegantly led us on to the, the question of politics, uh, since you talked about her, her relationship with the SPD. And I think, so... If we just think about the election in September, which is like just about four months away, um, so not that far, she's no longer running. Is that is that making it a special election, a pivotal election, or is is every election pivotal? No, I think this is very different, um, and it's different for 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 a number of reasons. A because, I mean, if you if you look at it as from a, from a historian's sort of point of view, in a way, Merkel, as I said, continued the politics from the late 20th century. What she hasn't done very much about is prepare Germany for the challenges of the 21st century. So there's the emergence of China, which offers a new autocratic model that, that, that uses capitalist ideas. There's the relationship with Russia, which is posing an increasing threat and which Merkel hasn't done anything about really. I mean, Ukraine is really an embarrassment for German and, and EU foreign policy, I would argue. And she hasn't, whilst she was the autokanzlerin, well, you know, she, she did a lot to further German exports and, and continued this uh, long streak of Germany being, you know, a leading exporter. The change in the automotive industry, of course, is afoot, and it's happening very, very quickly. And, and I'm not sure that the German industry will actually manage to catch up with that new technology in the, in the short, time, short time span that, that we're now seeing. You kind of mentioned two domestic and uh, foreign policy, let's say, um, agenda almost for, for the next government. I mean, it looks as if we have two main candidates to, to follow Angela Merkel, either from her own party, Armin Laschet, Christian Democrat, or Annalena Baerbock, who is a Green Party candidate. Of course, in theory, there is also Olaf Scholz from the Social Democrats. But if you look at the polls... Yeah, that's, a, as you say, that's a theoretical... Yeah, it's, it seems uh, more relegated to place three. It's between 
Baerbock and Laschet. Um, do you think, obviously, foreign policy is always, it's not really a topic of the campaign so much, but do you think in, in meeting these foreign policy challenges as they are, um, there will be a big difference between Laschet and Baerbock, or is there ultimately still some sort of foreign policy compromise, would you think? I think there is a difference. I think Laschet is is the obvious candidate to focus on the transatlantic relationship and, and the rebuilding of that. You know, he is in a way. I think he is he is a natural heir to to Merkel. His father was a miner. He is deeply rooted in the local community in in Nordrhein-Westfalen. He's he's very active in the Catholic Church. So, you know, Merkel, when she came to office, showed very sort of similar features in terms of character and background to Laschet. The Greens, on the other hand, um, will put on, the, on top of the agenda, their foreign policy agenda, uh, human rights in a way that you wouldn't expect the CDU to do. I think, I mean, they've said this already, they will move away from their sort of pacifist past in the way that Joschka Fischer did in the 90s already. And the co-chair of the Green Party, Robert Habeck, went to Ukraine and already made very, very strong signs that he feels that even a military, if not an outright military intervention, but certainly a human rights uh, aid with the help of the military is something that, that a Green Party would not just consider, but actively pursue. So I think there's a very different, a, a very different focus. Of course, also equally in the in the relationship with China, whereas Laschet is likely to continue Merkel's policy to increase trade, and in the words of of, of one of her her uh, advisors, perhaps try to achieve wandel durch handel, change through trade, change in Chinese policy. That is, the Greens will probably sacrifice German exports to an extent for insisting on, on, a, on a different relationship with China where human rights are absolutely top of the agenda. Obviously, in, in terms of domestic policy, one can expect for a green, a, a, a party-led or a government-led by the Greens or with a prominent green participation, even as a junior partner, a strong focus on the climate. Um, maybe even though that is acknowledged by the Christian Democrats, it's obviously not as much as this priority. Uh, as as it is for the Greens, for them, um, is there are there any other themes which you think that dominate uh, or that differ between the the two sort of leading sides here? Is this just about managing Corona crisis, or are there any big issues that really sort of shape the debate in Germany, in your view? Well, we don't know yet. I think is is the answer. One, I mean, we'll see. Doesn't look as though Corona crisis will be a dominant theme, but as at the moment, I think the main task for the Green Party is to persuade voters that they can be trusted. There is a, a, a broad base of uh, uh, Green voters who grew up with them, um, who have seen them settling down and becoming a, a, a main party. I read a funny, I can't remember where I read a funny uh, or interesting little statistic that 16% of Green Party voters drive SUVs, <laughs> um, and that's more than any other party. Um, so it is that is clearly one one sign that that the Green Party is now part of the establishment. But of course, they have to persuade Liberal Democrat voters, traditional Liberal Liberal Democrat voters as well, that they can be trusted to be in power and not 
and not raise their sort of more radical roots uh, that they that they were known for when they first emerged 40 years ago. Um, I, I want to move to the AfD in a second, just maybe uh, still one or two questions on the main contenders. Uh, the Greens, they, they had this before that they looked very strong in the polls. And then um, I think in the last two or three elections, they then in the last month, they just had a sort of late drop in the polls, almost as if a bit like you say, people then remembered their past rather than looking at how they started themselves right now. Um, is there a risk of this now or are they just too strong that they can survive any sort of last minute doubts? My sense is that they are so strong that, you know, we will we will most definitely see the Greens in government um, after September 26th. And then the, and the question only being, will they run the foreign office or will they run the chancellery? Yeah, and I mean, that's, of course, the other thing that we, we talk about them here a bit as contenders. But obviously, uh, one thing that's often talked about is that this might be the year when Germany gets a, a so-called black-green coalition, a coalition between the Christian Democrats um, and the Greens, where the Greens are maybe the junior partner and Armin Laschet is um, chancellor, but someone like Baerbock or Habeck is foreign minister. Um, is that is that workable? I mean, it is obviously on, on several issues. The two parties are quite apart, uh, but that hasn't stopped coalitions before. Um, do you think the German political system can make this one work? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, they, you know, you can get into the debate as to whether it is perhaps not conducive to pro progress uh, politics in the way that that other political systems can but germany is certainly not in a, a in a state where they want radical change and neither the cdu nor the greens are standing for radical change you know in britain you often you often hear what one of the sort of often used political slogans in this country is uh, not fit for purpose it is something that the opposition always uses, and, and that is often used in, during election campaigns. And a root and branch review of institutions or policies or, is promised. That's not, that's not what Germany is. Uh, Germany is, is doing okay. Um, I think Germans are happy, generally happy with the way things are going. The AFD is no longer as prominent a, a political force as, as it used to be. Although they have their sort of 10%, 10%, 11 12% probably, and they'll keep that. So they're, they're, they're just part of the, of the political landscape. But on the whole, um, the German voters are content and they, they're not looking for, for, for a party or a, a candidate to reinvent the wheel. And both, as I said, both the CDU and the Green are riding on that, on that ticket and are definitely, will definitely be able to, to come up with a, with a compromise during during co uh, coalition negotiations but the interesting thing about Laschet is of course that he is sort of born at the very heart of Europe he is born in Aachen Aix-la-Chapelle which was the seat of the Holy Roman Empress in fact I don't know whether you, you know this but I think his brother did a bit of genealogy and produced a paper that that says that the Laschet family are direct descendants of Charlemagne, I, you know, I, I don't know how, how easy that is. I, maybe maybe there's a television series in there. But his so Laschet's grandmother was born in the French-speaking part of Valonia in, in Belgium. Maastricht is across the river. He worked in the European Parliament. So he is on the one hand, he's deeply rooted in the local mining community where his father worked as a miner, and on the other hand, 
he is deeply embedded in you know what is what, what can be seen as the cradle of Europe and that puts a different spin on Europe under Laschet than it would for the Greens because I think the Greens would challenge Europe wherever they can when it comes to what they regard as their key policies about human rights, about change in, in industry from you know phasing out the internal combustion engine and, and introducing a green energy in transport as well as, as elsewhere. So I see a sort of potential conflict there in the, in the, in the coalition, but we'll see. Um, you, you already then now in a, in a side sentence addressed the AfD, the far-right alternative for Deutschland. It, it joined parliament four years ago with a quite solid result of 10%. That was probably on the good side of what they could ex could have expected. Um, obviously, their big theme at the time was migration. There were the anti-migration, anti-Merkel party. Migration isn't really that important right now. It's obviously all about Corona, uh, maybe the climate. Do you think they haven't really suffered from that shift? Uh, you don't see them um, in jeopardy? But with the uh, CDU having um, having moved so far to the center, and uh, as I said, having having crushed the the SPD, there is of course a space on the on the right of the political spectrum, and that has now been uh, occupied quite sort of firmly, I think, by the AfD. But in the same way that Die Linke, remember, the successor party of the East German Communists, continues to be a part of the political landscape. I think these extreme parties are perfectly, perfectly admissible. I mean, maybe unpleasant. And of course, the German Secret Service, the Verfassungsschutz, the Office for the Protection of the Constitution, is, is investigating the AfD continuously. Um, so we don't know whether they have a great future. But I don't see them as, as, uh, as a party that will either either collapse in the elections or experience some, some great revival. We talked shortly about the SPD. They basically stagnated at what probably is some of the worst polling results in history, below 20%, maybe even below 15%. And that, that seems to be a pretty much a very constant trend. Is uh, That's, of course, also something that sort of the demise of social democracy. That's a European theme. You see this in France, you see this in, in, uh, in Italy, I think, also maybe uh, probably less in Britain. Um, but, but Holland, certainly. In, in the Netherlands, right. Uh, so uh, is that a sort of part in some sort of European trend that they can't escape? Uh, is, is, is that it? Um, or, or are they going to be, obviously, they, that there is this already the last election, they were hoping to go into a position and have some sort of revival there. Um, a chance for this, uh, do you think? Well, it's a, it's a curious phenomenon, isn't it, the decline of social democracy? Because you'd have two crises that social democracy should have obviously benefited from. One being, of course, the banking crisis, when the taxpayer bailed out bankers to the tune of billions and, and nothing happened. And uh, well, nothing happened to bankers, but a lot happened to uh, ordinary voters who then suffered from, uh, from austerity and, and cuts, especially in Britain, uh, less so in Germany, but as well. And then, and then, of course, the corona crisis is a moment in politics where people, people realize how important the state is. They rely on the state. Um, every prime minister's press conference becomes absolutely the absolute focus of, of policy and we accept that whatever the, the government says we are allowed or not allowed to do 
is is crucial in shaping our lives. So there is that sense of of a different sort of a new sense of the collective, really. Uh, that conservative governments seem to have managed to fulfill very very well. So the the SPD in this country and social democracy, social democratic parties in other uh, in other European countries have not managed to benefit from from these crises. Why that is, is probably too big a subject to go into here. But at the moment, I think the SPD would probably benefit from going into opposition and recalibrating itself. And maybe it's also time for a new generation. I mean, one of the exciting things about the Greens, I think, for many people is is that young leader, Annalena Baerbock. You know, she is she used to do trampolining. I mean, how cool is that? Uh, and she's 40 years old. You know, um, and and Olaf Scholz looks looks a bit like like all the others, and he's sixty seven, and he's been around forever, and um, maybe it it is time for a change in direction as well as personnel. Last year, the the Christian Democrats got a massive boost at the beginning of the Corona crisis, as it's as the image was that the government is handling the crisis well. Now over the winter, this image was reversed and there was a lot of dissatisfaction with the handling of the crisis. And it almost seems that the the, pin, the polling numbers of the governing countries somehow related to the number of corona infections. And now, however, the corona infections are going down in Germany, the vaccination numbers are going up, and you're, you're potentially looking at a quite sort of good, upbeat summer. People are going out again. The economy is thriving again. Um, is this going to be ultimately a sort of sign of how is the mood going to be in the summer? And if it's a sort of happy post-corona summer, the conservative Christian Democrats are going to profit from it, or is it is there something broken more fundamentally, and this is people have forgotten about this a bit more? Well, I think you're, I mean, on the one hand, you're right. Um, there is, of course, a sense of optimism, and that easily translates into a sense of gratitude, perhaps, on the part of the voters when they when they go to the polls. On the other hand, I think there's also a sense of the CDU has been maybe they've been in power for a bit too long now. Remember, the uh, corona crisis also produced a number of sleaze uh, allegations and revelations that weren't, you know, that serious, perhaps. And, and we don't even know, you know, that although charges have been, been made, we, that there have been no, no prosecutions, no successful prosecutions. So we don't want to anticipate that. But there is a sense that the, that the Greens... Maybe it maybe it's their turn, and um, because especially because they come along in a guise that is generally palatable and not, as we said, not too reactionary or uh, radical. Maybe the Greens will benefit from that underlying mood for change more than the CDU will benefit from a general sense of optimism at the end of Corona. And another event that happened last week will help the Greens, which is the environment, you remember, the environment ministers of the G7 met and agreed to implement policies to limit temperature rise to 1.4%, as opposed to the 2% in the Paris Climate Accord. Now, these 1.5% were the, the platform on which a number of Green grassroots movements stood during local elections and they made it difficult, for instance, in Baden-Württemberg, uh, they stopped the Green candidate to win the elections outright and forced him into a coalition because they stole votes from him. Now, with the G7, 
committing to 1.5 degrees. That can only boost the support for, for the Green Party. Mm. Yeah, because it almost makes it implicit that they will have to stand for that as well. Exactly. That's a, that's a very interesting point. My sort of almost final question, would you venture a guess for the future? Would you venture a guess for what's going to happen in September? Um, well, I think I think it's going to be oh my goodness, you, your your guess is as good as mine. I think it is going to be a, a Laschet-led coalition of the Greens. So we'll have yeah. I don't think the Baerbock will will make it into the Chancellery after all, because if you look at East Germany, I think there are generally dissatisfied and large numbers of dissatisfied unhappy people in East Germany. And I can't quite see how the Green Party would would get those votes, whereas Laschet is more likely to to persuade those. In such a scenario, I mean, we obviously talk a lot about Annalena Baerbock now, the co-leader of the Green Party, Robert Habeck, he's considered the more intellectual, the more programmatic person. He's slightly older. He is, I think he also has experience in government for a few years in, in a federal state, which, which he hasn't. Would, in such a scenario, he be German foreign minister or German finance minister? Is he going to be the second man in, parla- in, in government to look for? Definitely. I think, I think he's, he's, he's definitely the one. I think the two of them chose Baerbock because she is the communicator. She is um, an effective communicator and an efficient implementer of uh, policies, whereas he is the brains. But when it comes to coalition and negotiations, I think think he, uh, Habeck, will definitely be on top of the list for a senior post in cabinet. Okay, well, thank you very much, John Jungklaassen, historian and columnist, uh, for uh, being with us today. Um, and discussing the election campaign this summer. Thank you, Philip. Our next episode is going to be with Tony Barber, European Affairs columnist at the Financial Times on European and British perspectives on German politics. Thanks for listening to this podcast on Germany and the world. You can find the Center for Geopolitics on Twitter at Cam Geopolitics. All of our events and podcasts are advertised on our website at cfg.polis.cam.ac.uk.